The following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credits for participation in this activity or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auau.auanet.org. This educational series is supported by an independent educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb. Hi, this is Vic Nitty, Chair of the AUA Office of Education, welcoming you to another Office of Education podcast. This one on adjuvant treatment in bladder cancer. I am very happy to say that we have not one, but two co-hosts for this podcast, and we'll be able to get perspectives from both a urologist and a medical oncologist as to the best place for adjuvant treatment in bladder cancer. My co-hosts today are Dr. Yair Lotan, Professor and Chief of Urologic Oncology and the Jane and John Justin Distinguished Chair in Urology at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. And we also have Dr. Suzanne Cole, who's Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Hematology and Medical Oncology. She is also the Medical Director of the UT Southwestern Richardson Plano Cancer Center. Doctors Lotan and Cole, welcome to the podcast. Great, thank you so much. What I wanna do is I wanna just go over four learning objectives uh, before we uh, get into things. And these are first to discuss the evolving landscape of adjuvant therapy for the treatment of advanced bladder cancer and analyze the risks and benefits of the new and emerging treatment options. Second is to describe the mechanism of action and associated side effects of the new adjuvant therapies. Third, to differentiate the roles between urologist and medical oncologist in the care of patients with bladder cancer. And lastly, to discuss the opportunities for coordination of care between urologists and medical oncologists. So I guess a good place to start, and I'll start with, uh, with Dr. Lotan, is who should receive adjuvant therapy for bladder cancer? Great. So uh, thank you very much for inviting us to be participants in this program. Uh, I think that we all know that patients uh, who um, undergo cystectomy are at high risk for metastatic disease, especially those patients with non-organ confined disease. And so uh, I definitely think that patients who have uh, T3 uh, or T4 disease or node positive disease uh, need to have a discussion regarding adjuvant therapies, especially if they have not received new adjuvant therapy in the first place. Uh, Certainly patients who receive new adjuvant chemotherapy, which is recommended by the guidelines, and still have invasive disease are at very high risk for recurrence. But most of the adjuvant trials so far have excluded uh, these patients from participation. And so the evidence for a benefit of adjuvant therapy after neoadjuvant therapy is really not established. 
Uh, but I definitely think that there is a advantage to getting adjuvant therapy for those patients who have residual uh, non-organ confined disease uh, who had not received new adjuvant chemotherapy. And I try to refer most of those patients uh, for uh, discussion, at least, of adjuvant therapy. I think it's important to give them a few weeks uh, to recover from their cystectomy before you have that discussion. And certainly, most of them won't start therapy for probably six to eight weeks after surgery, regardless. Um, one needs to consider um, how well they recovered and what comorbidities they might have in terms of renal function, um, cardiac function, et cetera. But uh, I often will tell patients, look, you might not be uh, quite ready for it, but at least have a discussion. And then I try to set up an appointment with an oncologist in around four to six week time frame. So Dr. Cole, I, I have a couple of questions for you. Uh, before we sort of get into the current standard of care, when you do have patients referred from urologists, um, first of all, is there a role for genetic testing as we start to think of initial adjuvant, uh, adjuvant therapy? And also, you know, just as, as a general rule, are there patients that are more likely to be uh, steered towards a clinical trial as opposed to some of the more current standards of care that we have? So I definitely think that there are some patients that we're going to think more towards the clinical trial option um, than the standard of care. Um, and I want to expand a little bit on what Dr. Lotan was, was saying as far as you know who should come and when they should come to, to talk about adjuvant therapy. Um, I, I want to point out that most of the adjuvant trials give patients a lot of time after a cystectomy to get to the point where they actually start adjuvant therapy. Um, all of the trials that we're going to talk about today gave patients a four-month window after their cystectomy to actually start treatment because it takes so long for people to really heal and get back on their feet to the point where they can even think about chemotherapy or any other type of treatment. And so it's very unusual for me to have somebody starting chemotherapy within six weeks of a cystectomy. Most of the time, they're just barely getting back to where they're getting around and, and feeling well enough to eat and their bowels are moving again. And um, so I, I have no hesitation in waiting, you know, 12 to 16 weeks before we actually start treatment. And, um, and a lot of times I think the sweet spot to, to sit down with a patient and actually talk to them about adjuvant therapy is probably the eight week mark from where they've, they've had their surgery, they're, they're starting to really recover and they can wrap their brain around the idea of, of adjuvant therapy. Um, and I think that, you know, we want to select people who are really fit for chemotherapy. Um, but if they're not fit for chemotherapy, that's when we start thinking about trials, because most of the trials that we have to offer are looking more at the immunotherapy options. And then now we have FGFR inhibitors, which are oral medications um, that you can offer to patients that have the FGFR mutation that we can target, um, and you can avoid the systemic chemotherapy. So those are, those are the times when we're looking at clinical trial issue or options for patients. Um, and that's when I'm really looking at uh, doing next generation sequencing for these patients to look to see, do they have an FGFR mutation or um, some other target that we might have a trial for? But in the adjuvant setting, we're really looking at the FGFR or immunotherapy. Um, that's, that's what's open at this moment. 
Okay, let's discuss the current standard of care for adjuvant therapy. So right now in um, adjuvant chemotherapy, it's really cisplatin-based. There's not, there's not a role for carboplatin. Um, although carboplatin has some benefit in the metastatic setting, it has not panned out to really improve survival in the adjuvant setting. Um, but there is some data, although it's not as strong as the neoadjuvant data, uh, there is data that if you receive adjuvant chemotherapy, either GEMSYS or dose-dense MVAC, um, you can improve progression-free survival. And there are some meta-analysis uh, that were looked at in 2005, and then there was an updated meta-analysis in 2013 that show um, you know, a collection of patients, about 900 patients altogether, nine different trials were compiled. Um, and there was uh, improvement in risk reduction of death of about 23% if you received adjuvant therapy. Um, and then there was also a very interesting observational study that looked at about 5,000 patients. Uh, and of those 5,000 patients, only 23% of them actually recovered enough and went on to receive adjuvant therapy. So it just shows you you know, how, what a hurdle it is for people to actually go on and receive adjuvant chemotherapy. Um, but they also did benefit and they had about a 30% risk reduction in death if they received adjuvant chemotherapy. So there is a body of literature that is supporting uh, the benefit to, to receiving adjuvant therapy if you have T3, T4 disease or, or lymph node involvement. And I think it's important to note that, you know, a patient who has positive lymph nodes has about a 70% chance of metastases and almost all of them will die. And so uh, we're strongly incentivized to try to get them systemic therapy. And, you know, what Dr. Cole mentioned that currently the best evidence is for platinum-based therapies doesn't mean that for those who are not platinum eligible, we just sort of say, well, we'll, we'll just wait for you to metastasize. And that's really why I think there is a push to try to get patients on clinical trial and why, you know, having other therapies, whether or not they're immune therapies or FDFR inhibitors for select patients are important because cystectomy alone is not going to cure a patient who uh, has no disease, nodal positive disease. And even patients who are T3 or T4, they have probably about a 50 to 60% um, metastatic rate. And these metastases usually happen in the first year. And so, uh, we really uh, have a sense of urgency to try to get them additional therapy because uh, we really feel, um, you know, quite disappointed when they have such bad disease. And uh, and again, this maybe is uh, this is a talk about adjuvant therapy, but it does go to show we understage bladder cancer significantly. And if you can get a patient on neoadjuvant therapy, uh, it's really to their benefit a lot of times. Um, but, um, but definitely for those with more aggressive pathology, uh, finding some of the systemic therapy that might, uh, might work for them is, is probably valuable. And, you know, and even though cisplatinum is where most of the evidence for it is available, uh, other treatments might have a role. And, and that's kind of where uh, I think a lot of the current research clinical efforts are going. You know, I wanted I want to talk for just a second about neoadjuvant chemotherapy and and just yeah get your perspective on how many patients who should receive neoadjuvant therapy actually do. 
I think it, here, of course, it depends on who you ask. But um, I mean, I think if you look at NCCN data and some of the large population-based studies, the suggestion is it's no better than 20 to 30 percent uh, of patients with muscle-invasive disease receive new adjuvant chemotherapy. And then it's also a question of whether or not uh, that's uh, the denominator is eligible patients for all patients. Because we recognize that probably about 20 to 30 percent of patients aren't going to be eligible for a variety of reasons, but um, but there's still room for improvement. Um, I think that it, you know, some major institutions is as high as 40 to 50 percent. Um, and I think that that's uh, something that really should be discussed and offered to patients. And uh, really, I think that the way you present the data uh, really impacts it because, it, you know, the five to 10% survival benefit sounds like a small amount for some patients, but if you turn it around and tell them it's a 20% lower chance of dying of bladder cancer, somehow it becomes more palatable. And, and that's really, you know, just, uh, just a, a, an issue related to statistics, but as physicians, we have a lot of influence on patients. And I think, you know, when you send somebody to Dr. Cole, she's quite persuasive. So if the patient actually makes it to her door, they're much more likely to get new adjuvant chemo than if they only talk to me. And so part of my job is to tell them, you know, what the survival benefit, but also convince them to see a medical oncologist. Um, because that that's really part of the challenge is to get them to hear another opinion, especially one that reinforces what you just told them. Um, then they're much more likely, I think, to, uh, to agree to it. What about what? What is the role of adjuvant chemotherapy in somebody, or adjuvant therapy, in somebody that's had neoadjuvant therapy? So that's that's a lot more tricky. If somebody has had neoadjuvant chemotherapy and they still have a significant amount of residual disease, in my mind, they're showing us that they're the chemo-resistant population. Uh, and so those are the people that I'm really looking towards doing something different, grabbing a clinical trial that's looking at immunotherapy or an FGFR inhibitor. Um, but I'm definitely not reaching for more systemic chemotherapy uh, because it's not likely to help them. Um, but those are the patients that I'm enrolling onto the ambassador trial uh, or whatever is next um, to, to try to see if they'll respond to something in addition and then there is some data that if they have T3 disease, T4 disease, lymph node disease, um, there is some evidence that adjuvant radiation therapy may be helpful, but that is much thinner than the adjuvant chemotherapy data that is out there. And that's much more case-by-case -case basis. And it kind of depends on were the margins positive, what was the extent of lymph node involvement, um, and also kind of the comfort of your radiation oncologists. So at the beginning, uh, yeah, you mentioned the, the sort of how important it is for urologists and medical oncologists to work together to optimally treat this disease. So who typically are patients that you will refer to Dr. Cole? Which bladder cancer patients are you referring Right. I, you know, I think uh, in the neoadjuvant setting, it's a much broader group 
because I'll talk to any patients with muscle invasive disease about neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Unfortunately, we know that bladder cancer is a disease of the elderly and the average age is in the low 70s. And so, you know, I think it's much harder when you see a patient in their early to mid 80s and, and talking them into neoadjuvant chemotherapy because um, many of them do have a lot of comorbidities and frailty and you really worry whether or not they're going to make it through two, two uh, courses of therapy. But sometimes I think you, you see a very healthy 82-year-old and uh, they, are, they deserve a shot or at least a discussion. Um, at the end of the day, we know that patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer that recur, you know, they're going to die within a year or two. And so if you have a fair discussion with them and they want the, you know, the optimal treatment, then it's really getting new adjuvant chemotherapy followed by cystectomy. Uh, obviously, you have to look at, you know, whether or not they're going to be eligible for platinum-based chemotherapy. The guidelines recommend against any other form of neoadjuvant chemotherapy other than a clinical trial. So if they have renal insufficiency, I'm not going to waste their time and send them unless we have a trial open for that particular reason. And Cure One, for example, there are some immune therapy trials that, that were open, and there are some that are other ones looking at uh, and Fortimab and, and some other combination therapies for new adjuvant uh, treatments. But if, uh, other than a clinical trial, unless they, you know, if they're not eligible for platinum-based therapy, then they're not going to get sort of standard of care. But, but every other patient, I think, uh, that has muscle invasive disease um, really should see a medical oncologist for a discussion. Well, and I would also like to say that a cystectomy is a pretty big deal. And if a surgeon is thinking, I can get this person through a cystectomy, then I'm pretty sure I can get them through chemotherapy. That's kind of my philosophy. You know, if, if you think you can get somebody through a cystectomy, I, I, I want to have a chance to talk to them because I really think that, you know, with, with the modern way of giving chemotherapy, the supportive care that we have available to us, the ability to give fluids and antiemetics and, and just, you know, modern medicine of, of being good to patients and, and taking good care of them, we can get people through chemotherapy like this. They may not get through four cycles. They may get one or two cycles. But I, I think that the literature also bears out that even a little bit of chemotherapy can be beneficial to patients in downstaging them and helping them get better operations and having better outcomes. So um, I, you know, I will try if the patient is in good shape and they have good organ function and they walk into my office and they're, they're motivated to do whatever they can to get through the treatment and stay alive and have the best shot at the best survival. Those are the patients that tend to, to go through the treatment and get to the other side of it. Dr. Cole, are in there... fairness, I think, you know, oh, sorry, in fairness, I should bring up that we also discuss chemo radiation protocols um, because that's, you know, there's been a, a bigger push, I think, uh, to try to offer that to, to patients who are eligible. And they're also eligible for new adjuvant treatments ahead of time, even though that's um, since usually the chemotherapy they get with radiation is just a radio sensitizer. So um, uh, I think. There are some probably some patients that might not be eligible for chemo radiation protocols, but after neoadjuvant chemotherapy, their disease will be, you know downsize, and they could theoretically get that treatment. So, it's at least something to consider on on the urology side of things. 
I wanted to ask Dr. Cole if there are patients that you patients with bladder cancer that you don't see or that medical oncologists don't see that they should be seeing more of? So I think that happens really commonly in the community. Um, I spent about 10 years in practice before I came back to the academic world. Um, and, and there's a lot of patients that just get operated on and never brush past the medical oncologist. Um, and it's, it's not until they end up in the hospital with their metastatic disease that we're ever alerted to them. And um, I think that that's, that's a real shame. And I, I don't know if that's just longstanding culture um, or you know what, why that has come about, but um, I think bladder cancer is a tough type of, of cancer to take care of. And um, if you don't have a medical oncologist that maybe you're in contact with that is enthusiastic about taking care of, of this type of, of disease and is skilled at MVAC or GEMSYS and is not afraid to, to help get your patients through it um, in, a, in a good way, you may not feel confident in your own medical oncologist's ability to, to get somebody through cisplatin-based therapy. You know, so there, there may be some biases both ways from the urologist towards the medical oncologist. Um, I'm, not, I'm not totally understanding what the culture mismatch is, uh, but I did see it a lot when I was in the community. Yeah, before you, prior to referral to a medical oncologist, other than looking at the, the disease itself, are, is there ever any additional testing that you'll do prior to referral? I can tell you what I really um, like. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I just called Dr. Cole and asked what tests she wants done. Uh, no, for me, you know, I think that... Um, you know, I think it, it all depends really on whether or not I've already operated on them or not, because if I've operated on them and done a TRBT, then I probably have had cardiac clearance or stress tests uh, and had a better sense for their overall medical condition. And, and so I don't use any of the, you know, different point systems to try to calculate, you know, I have a just gestalt on whether or not the patient walked into the room a patient walks into the room without oxygen, that's already a pretty good indication to me on what their overall physical status is. So uh, if they came in on a wheelchair and they have oxygen and their spouse is talking for them and I don't, I can't get a history from them, then I have a bad feeling about the whole situation. So, and then I'm not really sure that a cardiologist is going to make me feel a lot better about it. Um, in fact, that's sometimes the time when I say, let me go read TURU and I'll do a stress test to see if they can you know, how well they do with a TRBT before I consider a cystectomy. Uh, but, um, but in fairness, a patient who's, who's walking, talking, um, and uh, is usually in pretty good shape. And uh, if I need to, I mean, a lot of times we will get a stress test. Uh, I mean, we'll, we'll get basic lab work, which will tell me kidney function, liver function, et cetera. But um, I don't do any of the, you know, things to look at sarcopenia or other things like that, I can usually eyeball that. And Dr. Cole, would you prefer that the urologist make that assessment or would you be of the opinion of, listen, send me the patient and I'll figure out what kind of shape they're in? So 
you know, I, I love everyone's assessment and I appreciate, you know, everyone's point of view. And um, I, I also like to see the patient and, and determine if I think that I can get them through it. Um, I, I like to have an assessment as to whether they have metastatic disease before we put them through any operations. Um, I also really care a lot about what their kidneys are doing because everything that matters around surgery is cisplatin based. And so um, I'm super really very invested in protecting their kidneys, particularly if they have any evidence of hydronephrosis. I'm very aggressive about placing percutaneous nephrostomy tubes as soon as I see any sign that they're going in that direction, because generally, if, especially if you have to do neoadjuvant treatment, um, that hydro is not going to go away until the surgery occurs. And so we need to, to protect that kidney. And um, some people kind of say, oh, the hydro's there, the kidney's dead, we're not going to be able to help. But I've had so many people reverse their kidney function or improve kidney function by having that percutaneous nephrostomy tube placed, uh, that I'm a believer in them. And it's a short period of time that patients have to have it in place before they go to their operation. And it can make a big difference as to whether they get cisplatin and get treatment or not. So that's, that's something that's very important to me. So I, I really like creatinines and nephrostomy tubes. That's kind of my priority. All right, let's move on to uh, uh, immunotherapy. Where do we stand um, with immunotherapy as adjuvant therapy for uh, bladder cancer? Well, it seems like very soon we're probably going to have something FDA approved uh, based on the Checkmate 274 trial that was presented at GUASCO earlier in February. This was a- Yeah, I think- Go ahead. No, 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 finish up. So um, this was an adjuvant nivolumab versus placebo trial. And the main endpoint was disease-free survival. And they met their endpoint. Uh, nivolumab had a 21-month uh, disease-free survival compared to placebo, which was 19 months. And just based on that, um, it's, we didn't get to see any overall survival data. It's just not mature yet, but it's looking very promising that we might have an approval this spring uh, for nivolumab in the adjuvant setting. Yeah, you had some comments on immune therapy? Well, I think... Um... I was going to let Dr. Cole finish her thought, but uh, I think the important thing about that trial also is it was uh, irrespective of pdl one status. So we were talking earlier about biomarkers, and uh, it the nice thing about this trial is it didn't matter uh, what your status was in terms of at least these progression-free survival outcomes. And um, I think it's going to be important. I suspect, uh, like you, said, you know, it's not FDA-approved currently, but there's a good chance it will be. And um, we know that most patients who progress end up dying of disease. And so even though it's not, you know, it's a surrogate for survival, uh, I think that there's a good chance that, um, that it will get approval. And it's interesting that, uh, that the Invigor trial, uh, which looked at atezolizumab, didn't show a similar progression-free survival. But um, my suspicion is that um, um, that there will probably be other check, you know, other uh, checkpoint inhibitors that will uh, demonstrate a benefit if one of them did, and um, 
I think it's going to be important because a lot of patients uh, cannot get cisplatinum. And uh, as we mentioned earlier, there's a very high rate of uh, metastases and um, patients are obviously concerned, physicians are concerned and would like to do anything possible to, to reduce the, the risk of metastases and subsequent death. You know, we, we often spend a lot of time talking about toxicity of immunotherapy. Dr. Cole, can you just sort of uh, give us a summary of the, the main toxicities, the main things that you are concerned about in giving immunotherapy to uh, a patient as, let's say, adjuvant therapy for bladder cancer? So the, the strange thing about immunotherapy is that it, it can go really well for a very long time, and you can be sailing along for months and months, and then out of nowhere, you can get a really dramatic toxicity that you're not expecting uh, that can be pretty devastating to the patient. Um, and the immune system can basically flare up and attack any organ in their body. Um, Thyroid is very common, but not very devastating. You can basically put them on thyroid medication and carry on. But if they get inflammation of their colon and they end up with unrelenting colitis, um, you know, they can be hospitalized. And I've actually had a patient die of colitis that we couldn't get under control. Um, if you get hypophysitis or um, adrenal insufficiency, you know, some of these things can really wreak havoc on these patients who are elderly and frail and have gone through a cystectomy and, you know, may, may not be in the best shape. Um, and so it can, it can be very harrowing when these really severe immunotherapy side effects set in. Um, and then I've had some patients who um, are in relatively good shape and do really well on immunotherapy but then their pancreas becomes attacked and they develop type one diabetes and they end up on insulin and they're, they're kind of bitter that suddenly they have this new disease that they didn't have before because they were on immunotherapy that may or may not have helped their cancer. You know, they're not sure if it made a difference because they're in the adjuvant setting and they don't have metastases yet. So they can't really tell, you know, wh what were they doing this drug for? So, um, it's, it's a little spectrum of, of badness when it happens. Um, and when you're lucky and you don't have anything bad going on, it's, it's wonderful. Are there any novel trials on the horizon uh, for adjuvant therapies? I'm aware of some things that are in development that are looking at um, combinations of immunotherapy and some chemotherapies. Um, there's some combinations of enfortumab with immunotherapy in the adjuvant uh, world. So there are there are some ideas swirling around, but not anything that we're that we're opening that we have on deck at UT Southwestern. Right now we have Ambassador uh, and Proof, which are the FGFR and immunotherapy trials that are open currently. Yeah, so I think you know the. The big issue right now is going to be trying to, you know, I think there's going to be a round of finishing different immune therapy trials with different drugs, and then there are going to be combinations of drugs. I think Enfortimab trials are going to be exciting because Enfortimab has been approved for patients who 
fail platinum and uh, immune therapy in the metastatic setting. So um, it has different mechanism um, as an anti-nectin antibody. So it might uh, work either well in combination uh, in an earlier disease state, which is an adjuvant state. Um, e even though there are a lot of toxicities that uh, Dr. Cole mentioned, I think it's, I think we should, you know, put it relative to, you know, um, the risk of metastases. If you had, if, if, if the checkmate trial holds up and there's a 50% reduction in metastases, it's definitely going to be worth the price for, for patients uh, when you consider it uh, in relation to the fact that they're just going to go on these treatments when they develop metastatic disease with much less benefit. So if I had node positive disease and a 70% chance of metastases, um, you know, looking at immune therapies uh, in terms of their toxicity, uh, I think it'd have a much different perspective. I mean, as urologists, we're, we're contending with these perspectives for non-muscle invasive disease in the BCGN responsive space. And that for, a, for some of us is much more of a challenge telling patients, well, this versus cystectomy when you have a disease that's, that's much less likely to become systemic or metastatic. But in a patient post-cystectomy with T3, T4 node positive disease, their risk is so much higher of dying of the disease that um, the level of toxicity uh, is much more uh, agreeable, I would say. Well, as we finish up, I wanted to give uh, each of you an opportunity for some uh, closing thoughts. Uh, Dr. Cole, we'll start with you. Um, so I, I just wanted to welcome the urologist to reach out to your friendly medical oncologist um, and, and, and invite you to collaborate with them and share your patients with them. Um, I think anyone with T2 disease on up in the neoadjuvant setting, uh, we would love to see those patients and, and work with you to, to take good care of them and get them the treatment that they need to help you do cystectomies. Um, and then in the adjuvant setting, anyone two, three or, or greater, you know, we'd like to evaluate them and see if they are able to, to have any adjuvant treatment, whether it be chemotherapy or a clinical trial or immunotherapy when that gets approved. Um, but there are there is treatment out there that can benefit these patients that's better than just observing them. And we'd be happy to be the ones to help guide them through that. Dr. Lotan? Yeah, I, th I think, you know, um, when I think about muscle invasive bladder cancer, I think about the fact that half our patients will be dead within five years. It's a systemic disease in so many patients that we really have to treat it as such that Surgery is just one of the tools that we need uh, to take care of our patients. And that, uh, that means that we need to start thinking about uh, not, uh, you know, what systemic therapy, but, but when and, and uh, you know, when's the best time to approach it. Because so many of our patients are going to need it, whether or not we give it to them early or late um, might impact their survival. So we need to be more open to neoadjuvant therapies. We need to be considering adjuvant therapies. And we really need to keep an eye out on some of these uh, trials as they come, out, uh, come on, one to potentially offer and participate and try to get these patients enrolled so we find out if the agents work, but two also that when they get reported out that uh, we're advocates for our patients to go on these therapies. And, and uh, you know, as Dr. Cole mentioned, you know, it's, um, 
it's great to have, you know, a collegial relationship with a medical oncologist. Uh, many of our diseases, uh, whether or not it's prostate cancer, or kidney cancer, require systemic therapy. So it's good to, uh, if, you, if you can encourage an oncologist to become a geo-oncologist, not just an oncologist, by sending them patients, then they become more interested in our diseases. They'll open these trials and they'll be great partners for us. Uh, but we also need to, to pay attention um, uh, to see what's on the horizon. And, and some urologists are actually even offering infusions. It's not something that I care to do, and, and, uh, but it's something that some uh, large urology group practices are offering themselves. And so we do need to become familiar, uh, especially those residents and fellows training on the toxicities so that if we do encounter it, if our partners are giving these therapies, we better know uh, if they're on call, you know, if we're on call for them, uh, what we might need to expect as well. Um, but um, I'm excited. There's the, the, the fact that we have all these trials to even talk about is, is, a, is a, a good thing for everybody. So I think that uh, it's safe to say that from our two co-hosts, uh, the, the belief is that bladder cancer from T2 on up uh, is something that should be treated in a multidisciplinary fashion with uh, surgery when appropriate and neoadjuvant and or adjuvant uh, therapies uh, when appropriate and really something that uh, is ideally suited for a multidisciplinary approach uh, from both the urologist and the medical oncologist. Um, I want to thank uh, both uh, Drs. Cole and Lotan from uh, UT Southwestern uh, in, uh, in Texas for, um, for this podcast. I think it was really informative and really sent a great message uh, to our listeners uh, that uh, collaboration is really important. And um, in the case of, uh, of bladder cancer, probably the really best way that we can treat our patients. Uh, so thank you to both of you. I want to thank our audience. Uh, and as always, uh, for more information, please visit us at auanet.org university. Thank you.